Consider the following two self-assessments. A guy named Henry Augustus Rowland. He was probably the world's leading physicist at the end of the 19th century, so the end of the 1800s. Uh, he led the physics department at Johns Hopkins University. And at one point, Dr. Rowland was called to be an expert witness at some trial. I don't know what the, remember what the trial was about, but uh, one of the attorneys on the other side at the beginning of questioning Dr. Rowland said a little bit smugly, something like, what makes you qualified to be a witness in this case? And Professor Rowland answered, I am the greatest living expert on the subject under discussion. Afterward, a friend of his who was in the courtroom questioned him, kind of like, yeesh, did you have to say that? That was kind of, kind of prideful. His friend says, Dr. Rowland told him, well, what did you expect? I was under oath. Now contrast that one with this one. Hudson Taylor, uh, the great missionary to East Asia, the founder of the Chinese Inland Mission. He was being introduced once at a large church in Australia, and his introduction went on and on, listing every accomplishment and everything Hudson Taylor had done in the the uh, introduction finally ended, and I present to you our illustrious guest, Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor stood there quietly and uncomfortably for a few moments before saying, Dear friends, I am but the little servant of an illustrious master. Both men could be considered great men. Both men were at the top of their fields had accomplished much. But one of them saw greatness as being accomplished by him due to his intellect and his hard work. The other saw greatness being accomplished through him because a great God had gifted him in ways he could use to serve his God. Where we pick up today in the book of Philippians, um, Paul's talking about humility. It's been a while for us. It's been a couple of weeks because we had uh, some young people who had the audacity to graduate during our Philippians series. But where we pick up today, uh, we're still talking about something Paul said several sermons ago for us. In Philippians 1.27, Paul wrote, the Philippians, like only or solely, exclusively, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Everything we've read since then, everything we'll read for, for a little bit, is about what this looks like in the life of a Christian. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now it's interesting, when Paul's to me, when Paul says that, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then Paul starts to explain that. He doesn't give a list of sins to not sin. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. That means we never do this. We wouldn't be caught dead going there. We'd never be like this. Now there are sins to avoid, namely all of them. 
right? But that's like, even if I could say, I never do any of the no-nos listed in the Bible, that still wouldn't mean this is true about me. Because conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is about much more than avoiding sin. When Paul began to explain what this means, he said, take all the good stuff you get from God because of the gospel, all of the encouragement you get from God, the love and affection you get from God, all the comfort that the gospel brings, all the the fellowship you have with God and other people. Take all that and be that toward other people. That is conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then Paul said, you know what it will take to be able to pull that off? Great humility. Which is an accurate assessment of self. I see myself the way God sees me if I'm humble, which means I don't see myself as garbage or trash or nothing, but I also see my sin clearly like He sees it. And then... To be humble, I must be others-focused. Put the interests of others ahead of my own. That's what Paul has been saying. That's what Paul is still saying. In today's passage, but it will be kind of hard to keep that in mind because Paul is going to launch into a hymn, a poem, a song about Jesus. Paul's going to hold Jesus up as the example of the humility he's been talking about. And we're going to learn some unbelievable, some some wonderful things about Jesus Christ. One thing we learned that, before I mention anything, this, this hymn we're going to read, it shows that what we believe about Jesus today is what the early church believed about Jesus. Right? If you're watching the History Channel, Uh, And they they might tell you that the legend of Jesus Christ grew over the last 2,000 years till this modern understanding. No, it didn't. The contemporaries of Jesus, the people who lived when Jesus lived, believed this stuff we believe about Jesus. It's where we get our beliefs. Paul wrote this in the 60s AD. People who hate the Bible agree with that. This hymn is is beautifully written, it's theologically rich, and it's got this really uh, full Christology. Um, Well, let's read it. Enough about me talking about it. Let's just read it. We're in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 5 through 11, the hymn of him. Verse 5, Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death For this reason also, God highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The glory of God the Father. That, that hymn, that song, that poem, it all, it's about two things, two obvious paths. The humility of Jesus Christ and the resulting exaltation of Jesus Christ. That's where we're going. But first, Paul starts with a command. Before he gets in to the hymn, to the song, which we don't know if Paul wrote this or if this was known in the early church, but before he gets to it, Paul starts with an imperative, a command. He tells the Philippians, you should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had. You should be like Jesus. And what that attitude that Paul wants us to uh, imitate is the subject of that hymn. So, like I said, two obvious halves of this hymn, this song. Let's go through it. First, this humility of Jesus, verses 6 through 8. Paul begins this hymn talking about Jesus. And Paul says, although he existed in the form of God, we've got to stop already. This thing is so dense. It's stuff that needs to be explained that makes us uh, wonder. We've got to stop already. Uh, what is the form of God? Well, we can't even get that far yet. We've got to start right here. He existed, Paul said. About Jesus, Paul said, He existed, past tense. Which means, before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, He already existed. He existed, we would say, from eternity past. His friend John said, in the beginning, Jesus was there. Or we read in Colossians, um, and then John also says, all things were created by Jesus. He's creator God. There's not one thing that has been made that he didn't make. He existed. That, that's enough to let us know that Jesus is God. Do you know, this is not true about you and me. Before you were born, before you were knit together in your mother's womb, you didn't exist. The cults, some of the cults, teach that. That God has like a storeroom of souls in heaven. And when he's ready for a, a person to be born, he took you off the shelf, so to speak, and you already existed. And then he sort of implanted you there. You know why the cults need to teach that? Because they have to do something with this verse. If you want to denigrate the deity of Christ, if you... You have to do something with this verse. Because if we didn't exist before we were born, and Jesus did exist before He was born, guess what that makes Him? God. Right? So, the answer to that is, well, then we must also have existed before we were born. Not true. Not true. He did. He existed. And then, moving on, Paul says, He existed in eternity past in the form of, of God. What's that mean? Uh, form, the Greek word is morphe here. It does not mean shape. He didn't exist in the shape of God. Um, 
God the Father is invisible. He is spirit. He doesn't have a shape. So that Jesus existed um, in the form of God doesn't mean he was in the shape of God. Here's what this word means. It means that something's outward appearance matches the inward reality. So I exist in the form of the outward appearance of a man because I'm a man. I look like a man because that's what I am, right? I'm not actually some other being just appearing as a man. So that Jesus existed in the form of God from eternity past, that means he looked divine. In eternity past, before he was born as a baby, Jesus existed and he looked like whatever God should look like. His outward appearance matched the inward reality that he was God. He looked like God because Jesus is God. That's right. The So, he existed in eternity past. He looked like God because he's God. But, at some point, God the Son, Jesus, decided or figured out or it was time that there was a better course of action than hanging on to his outward appearance as God, the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. We'll start this little phrase with, with this first, grasped. That's a, it's a hard word to translate. Uh, Harpegmas is, is the Greek word. And it, it, it does happen when someone steals something because it means to grab something or to hang on to something for selfish gain. This is why some of our translations use the word robbed here. Right? He didn't think that equality with God a thing to be robbed. But Jesus hanging on to, had he hung on to his outward appearance looking like God, he wouldn't have been stealing anything from God by doing that. He was God. It would have been perfectly reasonable for him to continue looking like God, divine. What this means is Jesus decided that hanging on to that outward appearance of God, there was a better course of action, so he loosened his grip on his outward appearance, this glorious, shining, brilliant um, appearance that comes from his divinity from the fact that he's God. Jesus didn't stop being God. There's never been one second that Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, wasn't God. Whatever this means, he didn't stop being God ever. But he had always looked like God and there came a point where he decided the best course of action is to let go of the form of God, an outward appearance that matches his inward reality of divinity. Now, I want to pause for one second right there to explain something else. What Paul is talking about, this condescension of Jesus who has always God and looked like it, becoming man, becoming human, is kind of the exact opposite of the sin Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. You know why God said he was going to make people originally? 
Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us, there is the, the Godhead, the plurality of God, let's make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over all the earth. If there was a person that had dominion over all the earth, what would you call that person? Would he not be or she not be the, the king of the earth? He would be. That's what Adam and Eve were created as a couple to be kings over all the earth. But that wasn't good enough for them. They bought this temptation in the next chapter, mouth, came out of the mouth of Satan, the serpent, who said, in the day you eat that fruit that God told you you shouldn't eat, in the day you eat that, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. So do you see the mistake that Adam and Eve made? They were created to be kings of the earth. That wasn't good enough for them. They wanted to be not kings of the earth. They wanted to be like God. You see how Jesus does the exact opposite at some point. He was God. He looked like God. He created everything that was ever created. And He condescended. He felt it best to not to decide, I want to be something bigger, greater, higher. I want to be something lower. I want to be a man. So, he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be held on to. So even though he was, he was always God, every second of every day, for all of eternity, past, present, future, instead of hanging on to this equal form of God and outward appearance, Verse 7 says that he emptied himself. Verses 7 and 8 are the explanation of what this means right here. That Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. What's that mean? Paul said, I'll tell you. Read verses 7 and 8. Here's the problem though. Paul's explanation, we don't understand any better than the thing he's trying to explain. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here's what he did. He emptied himself. Himself. Kanao, this is, if you know the theological term for this, this is the kenosis. This is where it comes from. Instead of hanging on to his position at the right hand of the Father and his outward appearance of divinity, instead of that, he emptied himself. It's a way of describing Jesus letting go of the outward appearance of being God, condescending to become a man. There's been a lot for 2,000 years, I'll bet. There's been discussion of what Jesus emptied Himself of. There's a lot of discussion of what divine qualities Jesus laid aside when He became a human being. Those are worthy conversations. I just don't think it's what Paul is talking about. Because Paul doesn't say Jesus emptied Himself of anything. He says He emptied Himself. He poured Himself out. He existed in the form of God. Outward appearance matched the inward reality. He poured Himself out like of that outward appearance. And instead of looking like divine Creator God, which He is, He emptied Himself. He poured Himself out. And He took on a different at this word again, form, 
Same word as right, he, as right here. Morphe. What's form mean? I've said it about 25 times, so hopefully you remember. Jesus didn't take on the shape of a slave or bondservant. He took on the appearance that matched the inward reality. He didn't just look like a slave or a servant. He actually was one. He looked like one because he was one. Just like in eternity past, he looked like God because he was God when he became a human being. He looked like a servant because he was a a servant, a slave. That's why Jesus said one day, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. He took on the form of a servant. That is what emptied himself means. Instead of looking like, uh, looking divine, he poured himself into the likeness of a servant, the likeness of men. When Jesus came to earth, he no longer looked like God. He was God, but his outward appearance didn't match that inward reality. He put on humanity, and his outward appearance matched a new an additional inward reality that he was a servant. And you know what he looked like? A first century Jewish dude. That's what he looked like. Unremarkable. Whatever, some version of normal. It's, it's one problem I always have with, with movies, with depictions of Jesus. Like, do you have to get the guy that looks like Fabio to play Jesus? Do you have to? Can't you just get a guy? Then, verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, so once he became human, took on the form of this outward reality, uh, or outward appearance that matched the inward reality. I'm a servant. I'm a human being. Once he... Was that a step down, by the way? Was it a step down to go from right hand of the Father, Creator God, looks like whatever God should look like, and step down and become a first century Jewish dude? That's a step down. But he didn't stop stepping down. When he found himself in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself even further than that. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't come to earth as a superstar, as a wealthy person. He came to earth as a servant. By, even by servant standards, he humbled himself. He lowered himself as a human being and only did what was obedient to the Father and what served other people. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, even if obedience included a horrific, torturous, humiliating death on a cross. All of that is what Paul means by saying, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What do you mean by that, Paul? Well, he emptied himself from that divine appearance. He became a human being, a servant, and that wasn't enough humbling. He humbled himself even by human standards. And Jesus stepped from right hand of the Father looking like God to the place on earth that had to be as far away 
from his pre-incarnate state as he could possibly get. Naked, tortured, dying on the cross, having become the sins of the human beings he created. That's as far away as you can get from the right hand of the Father. Right? That's humility and obedience. That's the humility of Jesus Christ. Question. Was it worth it for Jesus? Did Jesus' emptying himself, humble, perfect obedience, did it pay off for him in the end? That's the second verse of the song. It absolutely did. That's what verses 9 through 11 about. The exaltation of Christ, which only happened because of the humility of Christ. We're going to read some amazing stuff in verses 9, 10, and 11 that happened like to Jesus, for Jesus, and will happen concerning Jesus. But what, what Paul writes in these verses only happened because of what Paul wrote in these verses. Verses 9 through 11 happened because of verses 6 through 8. For this reason also, Paul writes, God highly exalted him. The cool word, Greek word that really means like super exalted him. And God bestowed on Jesus the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow, uh, no matter where uh, people find themselves, on, in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, every tongue is going to confess Jesus Christ is Lord, and all this to glorify God the Father. Okay, Paul starts, don't skip over this part, for this reason. Your translation uh, might say, therefore. If you have an old school translation, it might say, wherefore. As a result of, your Bible might say, as a result of what? As a result of what we just read. Jesus' perfect obedience. Jesus pouring himself out, emptying himself, becoming a human, not just any human, the most humble, the most obedient. Obedience even to death on a cross. Because of that, as a result of that, Paul says, let me tell you what happened with Jesus. As a result of all that Jesus did in verses 6 through 8, especially his obedience to die on that cross, we read next in verse 9 that God, that God super exalted him and gave him the name or bestowed on him the name which is above every other name. Now that should raise some questions. It has for me. i got to tell you, this is the first time I've ever understood this, studying for this sermon. I'm so glad you, I get paid to do this. It's so awesome. You go sit in my office and I like read stuff. Great stuff. Um, how? So before he was a baby, did Jesus exist? What did he exist as? God. What did he look like? God. How many things were made by him? All things. How do you exalt someone above that? Because this says, somehow God exalted Jesus higher 
than he had been exalted when he was God. And he gets some name that's a greater name when his name was already God. Remember, it's a result of the humility of Jesus Christ. Here's what I think happened. When Jesus added humanity to his deity, Jesus gave himself the opportunity to become something, to be something that he could not have been as God. He got the opportunity to become the most humble and obedient human being who will ever live. He couldn't do that as God. Just like you will never be the fastest zebra in Africa. I don't care how hard you try because you're never going to be a zebra. You're you. Right? Jesus became the most, the most perfectly obedient, humble human being who ever lived. He never did one thing wrong. And he always did everything he should have done. So he was perfect in that he never sinned, but he was also perfectly encouraging, perfectly loving, perfectly others-focused, perfectly affectionate. Even when obedience required becoming the sin of mankind and dying on the cross. Now, Another question. Does God reward obedience? Yes. What do you suppose God would do with a human being who managed to be absolutely, perfectly obedient? And perfectly obedient to the hardest task God ever gave him. How would God reward that kind of obedience? You know how I think he would reward him? By super exalting him and bestowing on him the name which is above every name. Now, what's the name? Now, if you if you want to say that the name God gave Jesus uh, was Jesus, that the name God bestowed on His Son, which is above every other name, is Jesus, I won't fault you. I won't fight you, but I'll disagree with you. You already had that name. I think the name we find down here in verse 11, it's a title. I think it is the title of Lord. Because here's what happens with Jesus' obedience. Remember the mistake Adam and Eve made? God made them to be kings, co-regents over all the earth. But they wanted more. Jesus undoes that. He becomes less. He becomes a human being. Only he doesn't mess it up. He becomes the one because of his perfect obedience. He becomes what Paul will call him elsewhere, the last Adam. Let us make humankind or mankind in our image after our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, the livestock, over all the earth all the creatures that move on the earth, and anything else I missed up. You know what Jesus is going to do one day? He is going to rule over everything that creeps and crawls on the earth. 
the way Adam and Eve should have, but messed up because he didn't mess it up. Because of his perfect obedience, he gets to be Lord. And he gets to be so much so Lord that no one is going to debate that. No one is going to say, he ain't my president. Nope. If if Christianity is correct, and it is, the question is not whether or not you or anyone else will bow before Jesus Christ and admit he is my Lord. He is Lord. He is King. He is God. The question is not, will you do that? The only question is, when? Those who do it while they are alive and come to that by faith will actually reign with him as king. And those who do not come to that understanding while they are alive will be crushed by that king. They'll be right here. Every knee is going to bow. Those who are in heaven and on the earth. Those who are under the earth. Thrown out of his kingdom. Crushed by the king. But not until they admit, wow, was I wrong. He really is king and Lord and God. Notice how, how Paul positively identifies who he's talking about. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is the one everyone's going to bow to. You know, every religion is not the same. It does not matter how sincere someone is in their beliefs toward a different religion. Not if they can't be the same. If you know, if you have a Muslim friend See what they think about the idea that someday you are going to bow and you're going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. They won't like that. Just like, I don't like the idea that Muhammad is greater than Jesus either. Someone is right and someone is wrong. I'm going to stake my claim and my life on my eternity, and that this first generation of men who saw Jesus alive after he was dead and were willing to die from that really saw him. It, it's faith. We have to believe this is correct. But understand, you can't believe this and believe other things. Now that's the hymn. It's wonderful. It's awesome. It teaches us so much about Jesus. It teaches us uh, that he pre this pre-existent state. He poured himself into the form of a human being. He humbled himself even further than that. The most humble, most obedient human being who ever lived. And it was worth it. But do you remember why Paul wrote this? Paul didn't just decide, I think I'll write a poem about Jesus. You remember what Paul was talking about when he wrote this? 
try to remind you. Paul writes this because he's teaching you and me. He's teaching us how to treat one another. He's teaching us how to treat one another. He said, here's the command. You should have the same attitude or the same mind toward one another that Christ Jesus had had toward you. Well, what attitude, what mind is that, Paul? That's the poem. But he only tells us the poem to emphasize the command, which is treat one another. In what way? Others-focused, self-sacrificing humility. Instead of finding a hundred different ways to stand out, to look better, to be impressive, pour yourself out in the life of someone else. Instead of self-protection, self-absorption, it's others-focused Is that hard? It is. It is hard to give up things we have every right to keep. I have every right to keep my evenings this week, just for me. I have every right to keep my material things for me. They're mine. And God gave them to me. I have have every right uh, to keep the time I have for me. Jesus had every right to keep his position at the right hand of the Father. He had every right to keep his outward appearance of divinity. He chose something better. He poured himself out. Humble obedience to the Father service of others. It's hard. But this passage teaches us something else too. It teaches us it will always be worth it. It will always be worth it. Was it worth it for Jesus Christ to leave what he left to become who he became? Yes, he was super exalted and all that stuff we read in 9 through 11. Now you or I, we're not going to be exalted above all other things and have the name above Every, we're not going to get all that. But God will make it worth our time. For all of eternity, I and you, we will never be sorry. We gave up what we had every right to keep. For someone else's benefit into the glory of God. Pray with me. Father God, we are so grateful that Jesus Christ gave up what he deserved to hang on to, his position at the right hand of the Father. The outward appearance of divinity. We know Paul wrote this to remind people like us that you sometimes think it best for us to give up what we have every right to keep out of humble others-focused self-sacrifice. That others might come to see the great worth of Jesus Christ that we know and recognize and feel. God, lead us, show us what it is you would want us to give up, though we have every right to keep it. 
but what you would lead us to give up out of obedience to you, that would glorify you, and that would serve someone else, that we might in some tiny little way be like our Lord Jesus. We thank you that by faith, he will not crush us, but we will reign with him to the glory of you. We love you, Lord. We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand and we will finish. We've read about today the great I am, uh, the, the name of God Jesus took for himself. He called himself Lord of the Sabbath. He is God. That's why the Jews always wanted to kill him because he claimed to be God, and he claimed to be God because he is God. But temporarily, he left his position and his appearance to come serve you. And me, can we not serve someone else if he could step down that far? Is there a place too low for us to step if we're going to be like him? Love you guys. See you next week.